Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. Today we're sitting down with Dr. Mara Hammetts, Professor of History at James Madison University, and we're going to be talking about the Habsburgs and the collapse of the Habsburg monarchy in Austria-Hungary at the end of World War I. Now, the Habsburgs were a very old noble family in Europe. Today, though, our focus is not on the entire family history, but on the Habsburg-Lorraine cadet branch of the family. Dr. Hammetts, who were these Habsburgs, and can you outline their role in Europe to the period of World War One? So the Habsburg monarchy, or the Habsburg family, was really one of the most powerful monarchies in Europe from the 15th and the 19th century. It actually became the Habsburg-Lorraine branch, really became a important branch in 1740, when on the death of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles VI, who was the King of Bohemia um, and Hungary, as well as the Archduke of Austria, his eldest daughter, Maria Theresa, ascended to the throne, and she married Francis III, who was the Duke of uh, Lorraine. The Habsburg-Lorraine branch then ruled in Central Europe after that until the collapse of the empire at the end of the First World War. Franz Joseph is the emperor of Austria-Hungary when World War I begins. Can you give us a brief biographical sketch of him? Well, Franz Joseph was one of the longest reigning emperors or kings in Europe. He actually ascended to the throne in 1848 uh, when he was only 18 years old. He was born in Vienna in 1830 and was the son of the Archduke Franz Karl and Princess Sophia of Bavaria. So he had um, German lineage. From a very young age, he was raised as the apparent heir to the throne. Um, he served in the Austrian army. He's described often as a very distant, cold, upright, sort of morally stiff person. Um, not a very warm person. He didn't have very many close friendships. He did enjoy some significant successes as a ruler, among them the creation of the dual monarchy. He was able to keep the monarchy together in a very tumultuous time. But his personal life was marked by tragedy. In 1854, he married a cousin who was the daughter of his mother's sister, um, and she became Empress Elizabeth. He purportedly fell in love with her on first sight, which was not very much in his character. And um, he was supposed to be actually courting her sister. They eventually had four children, three girls and one boy. His wife never really became accustomed to life in court and spent much of her time away, despite the fact that he really doted on her and he, he pined for her when she was away. She was purported to be one of the most beautiful women in Europe. She was charming, yet unwilling to accept the strictures of the court and the overbearing presence of his mother, Sophia. Sophia was at court all the time and really be, was the heaviest presence in his life. Eventually, too, he lost Elizabeth when she was assassinated in 1898. In one of the stranger chapters in Habsburg history, his brother, Maximilian, becomes Emperor of Mexico. Can you give us a brief outline of his story? Well, it, it seems kind of strange, but, when, but actually it isn't when you think of what's happening in the world at the time. 
it's an, really an unknown chapter or a lesser known chapter in the story of, of European imperialism in the 19th century. Um, the Habsburgs were not as involved in well-known imperialist ventures in Africa and abroad as other great powers, but they did really have territorial ambitions and they were part of the European race to control lands around the world. Great power diplomacy suggested that foreign rulers were key to producing stability. Um, and a, the German prince, for example, was put on the throne of Greece after Greece declared in, in independence. So that's the big picture of Maximilian. He was the younger brother of Franz Joseph, so he wasn't likely to inherit the throne. Franz Joseph actually had a son, Rudolf, at that point, so he was kind of free, a, a, a more of a free agent. He was free to pursue his passions. One of the important ones to his story is his love of the sea, and he was a rear admiral in the Navy. He married Charlotte of Belgium, and they were originally set up to rule in Lombardy, but he was actually not a particularly adept ruler and was removed, so he retired to build a dream castle on the sea in the Adriatic Sea, um, the Miramare Castle in Trieste. He never actually lived to see the castle finished. The French were the ones, and here's where the great powers are there again, the French were the ones who invited him to become emperor. Uh, in 1859, French forces had gone to Mexico to, to collect um, debts that they were owed as a result of um, Mexican wars. France actually turned to the Habsburgs for a variety of reasons. It was a noble house with an important name, but it wasn't England and it wasn't France and it wasn't one of the other powers that really um, would, could be a threat to France. Um, Maximilian was reluctant, but he actually eventually accepted the, the post and, and the crown offered by the French and, and went to Mexico. The problem really for him was that he was more a bureaucrat than a skilled leader. Um, he tried to introduce some modernizing reforms. He really favored the kinds of projects that Napoleon III was doing too, uh, building roads, building infrastructure, reforming from a very scientific and European perspective and from a very bureaucratic viewpoint. He ruled only from 1864 to 1867, and really he was unable to strike this balance between reform and conservatism, and he was unable to connect with the local population. He didn't even speak Spanish. Uh, when France pulled out its forces, he was left with just a small army, and Charlotte actually then returned to Europe to seek assistance. By 1867, he was captured by the forces of Benito Juarez, um, one of leading the reformist factions, and at the age of 34, he was executed. Pretty tragic story. Pretty tragic story. Now, you've written a book about Franz Joseph's wife, the Empress Elizabeth. Tell us a little bit more about her. Were they a happy couple? Um, at the very beginning, it, their life together began like a fairy tale. She was a German Wittelsbach princess, and um, who he met as a young teenager. He saw her actually, the, or the story goes, that he saw her playing in the woods as his carriage pulled up. He was intended to court her older sister, and he saw her from the carriage and thought her to be one of the peasant children playing, and he later found out that uh, at dinner, that she, when she arrived at dinner, that he, she was in fact one of his cousins. She immediately captivated him. As she grew and as she got older, she was renowned as one of the most beautiful women in Europe. 
She became a kind of Lady Di of the 19th century, one of the most famous beauties in Europe. But they were not happy. She she did not like the strictures of court life. She did. She was really under the thumb of his mother. Um, she was also rather unstable. Uh, she she had trouble in publics in in public very formal settings. She was much more a salon type of hostess than she was a very formal royal host. Her beauty also she used in a variety of ways she, and she had some very odd habits. She was obsessed with her appearance. She had floor-length hair, which was made famous by a Winterhalter portrait of her with stars in her hair that has actually, through the ages, been an inspiration for fashion designers and, and, and contemporary fashion, from even from people like Lana Del Rey. There were rumors that she had a lot of affairs. Um, it's possible that she even had a child with Count Andrassi. She pr much preferred Hungary to Austria. And while he really felt his duty and responsibility keenly and really stayed at the castle, uh, at, in their home or in Austria in the castle, she really entered into a life, a pretty peripatetic life, going around Europe. She built a castle in um, Corfu, and she really, they never really got on very well, despite the fact that Franz Joseph, for her whole life, really adored her. So pretty tragic again. Yeah, very tragic. The couple had... Four children. Four children. They had four children. And the eldest son, Crown Prince Rudolf. Only one son. So they only okay. had one. One son. Yeah. So Crown Prince Rudolf... He's supposed to succeed his father as Emperor of Austria-Hungary. What happens to him? Authors, 19th century authors always say that he was like his mother, that he inherited his, the spirit of his mother. So he really was looked at as somewhat unstable. He was unhappy at court. We might say today he was a profligate son. He had a lot of affairs. He did a lot of drinking. Um, it's possible that he had actually contracted syphilis from one of the courtesans in, um, in the Habsburg court. But in 1887, he bought a hunting lodge in Meierling, which was um, for privacy, so that he could carry on his rather questionable lifestyle and affairs. In 1889, in January, he went there with a 17-year-old baroness named Marie Vetsera, who was clearly in love with him and captivated by his attentions. And it's really unclear as to what happened, but they both died there. Um, for, for many years, it was generally accepted that they had committed suicide. People suggested that it had been poison, that strychnine had been used, but then it was discovered that they both had gunshot wounds. Um, because of the royal nature of it, and it couldn't be a suicide, um, there was never an autopsy done, and it was never open to the public. So we really don't know exactly what happened to him. There's some evidence now that it was at, he was actually killed in a fight, which either could have been with Marie Vetsera's relatives when they found out, or there are also some people who claim now that it was a political conspiracy headed by the French who wanted to destabilize the Austro-Hungarian monarchy further. We'll never know really what happened, but he did die in 1889, and that was the end of that direct crown prince line, and the monarchy was then left to brothers and, and nephews. 
And that's how we get to Franz Ferdinand. He's eventually named Franz Joseph's successor. How is he related to the emperor, and can you describe their relationship? Well, his father was Karl Ludwig, and Karl Ludwig was a brother of Franz Joseph. But when Rudolf died, Franz Ferdinand's father, Karl Ludwig, became the first in line for the throne. But he died of typhoid fever in 1896, and that left Franz Ferdinand the, the heir apparent. Franz Ferdinand was really of a more reforming bent, and he promoted ideas of federalism as the only idea, uh, as the only answer to divisions in the empire. He also had a disdain for the pomp and ceremony of court life. I think Franz Joseph was seemed to be surrounded by people who didn't like the court life. What Franz Ferdinand then did was he fell in love with a woman who um, named Sophie Chotek, who was not a commoner, she was a countess, but she was not of royal blood, and Franz Joseph did not approve, so he considered a morganatic marriage. When he married Franz, um, against Franz uh, Joseph's wishes, he, um, Franz Ferdinand actually gave up the right for his children to inherit the throne, which actually then also served as kind of destabilizing as well. He actually married in the married her due to the intercession of other European leaders and Pope Leo XIII, who felt that he was the best chance to maintain a conservative, stable Europe. And that might have been in the Habsburg name, but it wasn't in him as, uh, as a particular individual. Franz Ferdinand is assassinated in Sarajevo in, in 1914. And I've heard that the court, and even Franz Joseph himself, they don't really care. They have so much disdain for him. It's not like a deeply felt personal loss. Is that true? Well, it's, it's always hard to know because one of the things that we know about Franz Joseph for his entire life is that he was pretty stoic, and he didn't show a lot of emotion in, in any circumstance. He was, except really where it had to do with his direct family, with, with Empress Elizabeth or his children. He was described as being sort of rather nonplussed. When he described it, he said it was an act of God's will. Franz Josef was really deeply religious and conservative, and he had been very uneasy about the direction that Franz Ferdinand seemed to be going with the monarchy. That said, he did, he did interrupt his vacation at Bad Ischl and return for the funeral, but he was really very hands-off with respect to any policy that followed, and he left the matter to his ministers. So the question really becomes, did he have no feeling about it, or was he so upset about it and he saw this as the end of the monarchy, and that was just a moment when he finally gave up? So I think it, it can be read either way. It's hard to know when you're dealing with the person of a monarch who's been trained not to react emotionally to anything. The court does not respond with the pomp and circumstance that one would think for somebody who was to be the heir apparent. But it, it, the response was certainly not overwhelming in the same way it was with the assassination of Elizabeth um, okay. in 1898. But there was a public funeral. It was a state funeral. There were also a lot of other tensions moving, and he wasn't the monarch. So right. he was actually the heir apparent. So I think it's a little bit different. 
So the assassination is one of the things that is going to lead to World War One. What role does Franz Joseph play in that decision, and what is he doing during the war? Well, he seems to have been bent on war with Serbia even before the assassination, and it's likely he was being pushed in that direction by his ministers before that. A decade earlier, the Austrian monarchy had been intimately involved in the government of Serbia, and prior to 1903, the Serbian king Alexander I of the Abrenovich dynasty was actually supported by Austria. But like all relationships in the great power system, Russia was pushing for greater influence, and in 1903 supported, or at least it seems supported, a bloody coup in which Alexander and his wife were assassinated, and power then passed in Serbia to the pro-Russian Karadjordjevic faction. This really continued to rankle for the next decade in Austrian affairs, and even a decade later, a series of economic setbacks and rivalries and trade competition between Austria and Russia in Serbia. So in many ways, I think he really wasn't opposed to war with Serbia and might have even considered it expedient for the monarchy and the great power game. Especially in that area, he felt pretty secure in the backing of his cousin, the German Kaiser. So that all said, probably the, the decision itself was the work of the hawkish, of hawkish ministers like um, the, his foreign minister, Leopold von Berchtold. You asked about the war. During the war, he seemed to have followed events, but on some level. But he really left military and political decisions to his generals and ministers. He was, in the end, at the head of what was a huge bureaucracy, um, a bureaucracy that was continually undermined by tensions within, and it was unwieldy in the face of war and the tensions that were actually splitting the empire apart. He dies in November 1916. And he's succeeded by his grandnephew, grandnephew Carl. Tell us about Carl. What does he do during the war? Carl reigned actually only for two years, from November 1916 to November 1918, and he was the he was the grandnephew of Franz Joseph. His claim to the throne had been distant growing up, so he was not destined for power or for the, to be emperor. So he attended military school, he studied sciences, and he had a sort of more general education. He served in the army, but he wasn't even involved in affairs of the state until Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in 1914. He was actually, he's actually now been, become a, a Catholic saint, which is interesting because he was certainly a devout Catholic, um, and he married, another thing that he did that put him in good stead was he married well, according to royal, even according to royal standards. In 1911, he married um, an Italian princess, Zita, of the Bourbon family in Parma. By all accounts, they had a loving and, and very close marriage. They had eight children, and they, their children were actually in line for the throne, as Franz Ferdinand's children couldn't be due to his morganatic marriage. During the war, Karl became a field marshal. He fought on both the Austro-Italian and the Eastern Front. He, after he ascended to the throne, he actually made secret overtures for peace to France. He was rebuffed, though, when he refused to accept Italian territorial claims. He was willing to make a separate peace, and he's remembered as a man who sought peace 
against all odds and in an impossible situation in the war. His ministers continually took a more hardline stance, probably a remnant of the stance that the Habsburgs had taken under Franz Josef. But heavy-handed negotiation actually backed him into a corner, and it wound up backfiring, and um, he was unable to get the separate peace with France, which forced the monarchy back into really a closer alignment with Germany. So in early October 1914, he finally agreed to autonomy for national groups in the empire, but by then it was too late. Uh, groups representing the Czechs and the South Slavs had already formed governments in exile in London and convinced the British and the Americans in particular that it had to be independence. It couldn't just be that they would be um, states within the imperial lands. So when Austria-Hungary collapses in October 1918, he is actively trying to be seen as giving these different groups autonomy, or at least not stopping it. The empire's falling apart, and he's trying to position himself to stay in power? Um, it's pretty clear that he, he sees the future of Central Europe in the monarchy, and he wants to maintain it that way. And you can see that in the way he actually descends from power. He seems to stage manage it in a way to kind of keep the door open for himself he, and his successors. He, he clearly wanted to maintain the monarchy and believe that, and believe that he could. He issued a proclamation in November, on November 11th that recognized the right of the Austrians to form their own state. But in the sense of the time, forming their own state could also be an autonomous state within the, the, within the lands of the empire. He renounces his right to play a role in the state, basically because he's forced to. Um, and then a few days later, he issues a similar proclamation for Hungary. But he never abdicates. And the strategy or the idea behind that is that this allows him be, to be a monarch in exile. And he maintains his titular leadership of the family and of the monarchy. It leads to repeated attempts throughout the rest of his life to return to the throne. He, he only lived a short time. He died in 1922 in exile on the island of Madeira. But he, he was a convinced monarchist, and he believed that while he was stepping down, he was not going to abdicate. And he, he believed, he was a firm believer in conservatism and the monarchy. World War I results in the collapse of a number of monarchies. You have the Habsburgs, obviously, the Romanovs in Russia, the Hohenzollerns in Germany. Without World War I, would this have happened? Do you think the circumstances and outcomes of World War I doomed these monarchies? That's always a hard question to answer, and historians, I think, often try to avoid the what-ifs. Um, we're much more comfortable with the what happened. I think, though, the collapse of the monarchies, I don't think we could say it was inevitable, but the forces that were forcing them apart were in play. And it's as much the monarchies collapsing as it is nation-states emerging. And the, we might say it's the emergence of Germany and Italy as states on the European stage in the 1870s that set the stage. We might suggest it's the small conflagrations and the and in colonial areas and the sort of playing out of those colonial issues and the emergence of nation states in the colonies and calls for nation states there. We also have um, bellicose, very bellicose factions. 
both on the conservative and the more revolutionary sides. And when those come together, the empires which were simply not agile enough um, with all of the different constituencies in them to be able to weather those storms in the way that nation states emerged and had a simple and singular cause for unity or tried to approach that. And that actually resulted in fascism. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Hammonds, for sitting down with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.